0: I don't know how good most sales people are analyzing their funnels. I think if most of them are honest when they go into a pipeline review, their number one objective is to get out unscathed for another two weeks. So they get promoted and who's teaching them how to go in. Uh, so many times you'll hear sales organizations talk about, oh well, we need to have 3x, 5x, whatever it is. Pipeline coverage, but in my experience, Andy, you need to also understand what is the ideal breakdown of revenue
1: by stage. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Paul Butterfield. Paul is the Vice President of Global Revenue Enablement at Instructure, and he's one of the founders of the Sales Enablement Society. And we're going to be talking about sales enablement today. Paul is one of the pioneers in the field, and he shares his perspectives about how far sales enablement has evolved since it started and where it's headed in the future. Paul and I dig into the primary challenges facing sales and how enablement is helping to solve them. And we talk about whether sales enablement is helping sellers improve in the areas that they need it the most. We also talk about how sales enablement should be supporting sales managers, who generally – let's all admit it – sales managers generally get the short end of the stick when it comes to receiving training and development, so we talk about that. And we also dive into about the whole topic about how to develop career path for those who want a career in sales enablement, and what sort of skills and talents Paul looks for when he's hiring people into his team. Now, before we get to Paul, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it, and if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So, thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Good to be here. Yeah, so... um You've been in sales enablement for longer than most people I know. Yeah, let's see. I think for me it was uh,
0: l- it was uh, late in 20, 2012.
1: So yeah, yeah, sir, almost back at the beginning. So you've you've seen it evolve. You are one of the founders of the Sales Enablement Society. So yeah, back at the beginning of of that, or yeah, you know, we're going to delve into the creation myth of sales enablement here. What was the sir? animating problem that drove the creation of of the sales enablement function and to evolve from whatever its predecessors were? Well, for
0: most of my career, I I was a sales leader and before that just carried a bag for a while, for a long time. And so looking at it from that perspective, around the time that my so what happened in my case, might be worth giving a quick background, I walked into my Friday morning one-on-one with my EVP that I reported to at the time. Mm-hmm. And he wrote sales enablement on his whiteboard. I had to go Google it. I didn't tell him. I didn't know what he was talking about. but <laughs> And then and then he proceeded to talk about, because he was new to the company, and he proceeded to talk about what he wanted for the company, and he liked how I was developing my team, and he asked me to go home for the weekend and decide if I would take on the challenge of then doing what I did for my team for his entire org. So, um, that's how it started. And, and the compelling reason that I... I know it was a problem there. And frankly, it's a problem every company I can think of, there really wasn't anything specific for sales. Specific with regard to what? As far as onboarding and ramping, right? Uh I mean, there's sales training, right? I mean, that was never a problem. but, But when you had somebody new, what's going on with that? In my experience, most companies where I was a sales leader, uh, you would get the same things from HR that the rest of the company new employees got, and then it was up to your manager to kind of figure out how to ramp, you know, bring you in, help you know what you need to know, make you part of the, help you feel part of the culture, all those things that are so critical in a ramping phase. And some managers are good at it, some managers weren't, and so you, so that that was the problem is nobody was really thinking about the sales people. And and so even more so, what does an overall professional development program look like? We would have sales trainings. They'd bring in somebody or maybe we'd go sit in a random thing at sales kickoff, but there was no cohesiveness. There wasn't a pathway, there wasn't a strategy looking across sales and thinking about what besides training. I, I and and so I my experience, that is the reason that sales enablement bubbled up is training alone isn't going to do it. Well, so it being what it really help. So, so when I think of sales enablement, I know there's a lot of different definitions. The core piece of it for me is yes, it's delivering the right content, right information, rather just in time at the right stage. Uh, you know, this this relevant. It's it, it's sales methodology. It's sales tools, sales stack, tech stack. But ultimately, what I look at, Andy, is that we want to enable our sellers to differentiate by how they sell. We live in an experienced economy. People want that. They expect that from salespeople. And I guess for me, that's the it is, is, is: How are salespeople developing past the kinds of selling that may have worked in the past? Or perhaps they are with a tech company. Um, I, I'm referring to Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm here. That, right. you know They worked in a tech environment where they were on the good side of the chasm and, and selling was good and life was great. And now they have to figure out Again, how to sell to laggards and skeptics? There was nobody that was looking at that holistically um, to make sure that that people were being developed so they stayed current. Their skills were continually refreshed. Uh, they, they they were having a great career with options, right? What are the, so once you have a salesperson that's proficient, then what experiences are they being offered that get them ready to say go from an AE to an enterprise role rather than feel like they have to go work somewhere else? So there, there's a that's a long answer, I know, to your question. But to me, when I think of sales enablement, there's a lot that goes into it, but ultimately, it's that customer experience. We we can't count on our product to differentiate us anymore. Haven't been able to for a
1: long time. Well, I agree 100% on that. Haven't been able to for yeah, forever, basically. But yeah. Um, now, in there, your, your definition, is you talked about, and I think this is some, a definition some people hold of it. You were talking about delivering the right content at the right time. So explain what you meant by that.
0: Well, it could be actual content that that uh, competitive information, persona information, you know, things that they worry about. It could be playbooks, you know, actual content. But when I think of content, I also think of what is the right, what are the right? Might be sales methodology. It might be advanced skills. It might be any number of things, but delivered to them at the right progression in their career. You can't throw everything at a salesperson all at once. They need to be selling. And so there's got to be a, a thoughtful approach and, and, some, um, and actually a strategy that's going to get them what they need, still let them sell, but then at the right stage in their career. When I look at sales, when I look at sales enablement as a, just an overall framework that I had to come up with some years ago, sure. I look at, I look at salespeople as being essentially new hire, conversant, and proficient. Okay, And and so you three, need to be looking stages. across that cycle. Yeah, three stages. And then they hopefully get promoted and stay at the same company. Um, and, and so I'm talking about looking across all of those and, and, and giving them what they need. It, like I say, methodology, sales tech stack, collateral, at the right stage in their career for the markets they're selling into.
1: Okay. And how would you um, define sort of the progression between those three stages? So New hire, conversant, proficient. Yeah, how long is a new hire stage until someone becomes conversant or ideally um, is that something you define as a sales enablement manager that people are in this stage for this long and we've got certain, almost like a sales stage, we've got exit criteria?
0: Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the answer is yes. I don't feel, I mean, in my experience, I would never decide that on my own. That's something I decide in in, in cooperation with the sales leaders. That I work with, who mm-hmm. are my customers, and my internal customers. But you do need to have that definition. And ramping so so somebody coming out of the new higher stage is gonna somewhat depend on their role. It's gonna depend on the sales cycle and the complexity of the sale. And you know, there's quite a few variables in there, but I can share in our current sure. where I am right now. That'd be right. An SDR, we feel we have an SDR effectively. Out of the new hire phase and conversant in about two weeks, for someone selling into very large universities and statewide school districts, you know, at that enterprise level, it's forty-five days, forty-five to sixty days to get them conversant. And I define conversant just what it sounds like: like they can they can run an effective discovery meeting, they know how to, they can do a, you know a good demo, uh, but they're still learning and this
1: this is an AE or an SDR.
0: This would be an AE. Like okay. I say, in our current the SDRs that I work with, my team works with right now, we can have them in the conversant in about 2 weeks and then start developing them from there. Uh, I'm talking about AEs and enterprise level reps being that mm-hmm. 45 to 60 days. Mm-hmm. That were but but then again, they are just conversant. And so the way that I structure and look at the program and it depends on the size of the team you have, but this is what I've been able to do at my last two last two gigs: is I've got people on my team that really focus on that onboarding and ramping. And I talk about onboarding and ramp. I guess you know terms do matter too. Onboarding is that first week, whether you call it you know sales boot camp, revenue boot camp, academy, whatever. But that's that first week that they're getting a big knowledge transfer. Mm-hmm. And a good academy, in my experience, that good first week does two things. One is knowledge transfer, but the second is they're being introduced to the people that are critical to their successful career at this new company. And so rather than somebody from my team teaching them how to operate, how to work with Deal Desk, we have Deal Desk come in and talk to them and start mm-hmm. to build a relationship. That's just one example. Sure. But then what about after that first week? They're gonna that we know knowledge fall off is tremendous the minute they walk out the door and it gets worse every day and so then we've got career specific pathways that they follow that have a blend of experiences including demonstrating mastery like demo pitch that kind of thing mm-hmm. that will continue and that's where the 2 weeks or 45 days or 60 days come in is how long is that pathway because there are based on you know the sales role there's just more skills and knowledge that needs to be transferred over. But we follow we've defined those pathways. And so anyone coming in into a specific revenue generating role in the company, we we know exactly what they need to do for the next for their first couple months.
1: So you're sort of tagging them at that point. They go through this. They're sort of sales ready. Exactly. Yeah. So sales ready.
0: But the demo that you learn when you first get to the company and the demo that you Want to want to and will get to. For, I'm just using that as an example. Sure, that's going to take time of honestly practicing in front of your practicing with your sales engineer, probably skinning your knees in front of prospects a couple of times. Right, it just some of that just comes with time, and so that going from that conversant stage into the proficient stage, some of it's time, but we want to actively support it. And and again, the last two teams that that I've built or pro- and programs I've built. That there's another there's uh, someone else or a couple other people on the team that are focused on, let's just say it's 60 days, day 61 through their professional and their professional development through their entire time in that job. And so, again, we're looking holistically across. We generally do this in halves. And so we've got personal development, professional development pathways that we do six months at a time. That we again consultation with the sales leaders, we're able to publish that as a roadmap. Everybody knows what to expect, and we have a plan together to continue
1: to progress people. Now, is that plan personalized, or is that this is what we this is the expectation for this role? You know, AE or enterprise rep or whatever.
0: It's mostly by role. That said, if someone's struggling with an area, you know, of, of course we you know we'll figure out a plan with their sales leader to respond to that.
1: But in general, we have them broken down by role. And so how do you, in that sort of professional development roles, how do you sort of divvy up the responsibility between you and the seller's manager?
0: My take on it is this. The sellers, excuse me, sales leaders have a very limited amount of time to do coaching. Even Why? if they are really good at it and they make every effort to do it, which we know is not even always the case. Yes, They have limited amounts of time. And so what we try to figure out with them, what I try to figure out with them is what are the few things that only a sales leader can or should be doing pipeline review? That one's pretty obvious. I know when I was a sales leader, I wouldn't want someone to tell me that my, 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 uh, my reps were pitching effectively. I want to see that. I wouldn't want somebody telling me that they were demoing effectively. So there's some things like that throughout their career that, but everything that doesn't have to be their sales leader as sales enablement, we want to take off their plate so they can laser focus on the things that they, you know, that they can or need to do and let us support them in the rest.
1: Well, but let's let's talk about this professional development. Cause within the professional development, there's certainly a mm-hmm. a strong component in my experience and my belief of mm-hmm. personal development. Yep. And so who's responsible for that? I think that should be the manager's job
0: how are you defining you said personal development
1: well i mean how, understanding the goals and aspirations of the individual that's working for you and helping them develop oh, absolutely. The plan and and, yes. and
0: yeah okay i see where you're going with that no i i would agree with that and then and that's right that's the career it's the career planning it's goal setting it's performance reviews continuous improvement absolutely agree with you there that that, that it, that it seems like I a think. lot of
1: that's being to me, it seems like a lot of that's being outsourced by the managers. I mean, to this whole point you'd made before, is managers have limited time. Everybody's got limited time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what I'm seeing is you know that, that the priorities are being given sometimes to the things that are a little bit easier to do on managers. Yeah. You know, hey, I've got to complete this report and send it upstairs, all these things. Rather than, yeah, let's let's make the priority the the people as opposed to the processes and everything else that needs to go on.
0: Well, I I agree with that and that's, that's something I see in a lot of sales and most sales organizations I've been part of. It I mean, even when we look at our sales people directly of themselves, there's all di- you know, it's different statistics, but the amount of time that they even get to spend selling because of the reports they have to send upstairs and <laughs> various things like that, uh, you know, that cuts into it. Um but but sales di- my sales enablement when I talk about the development, I'm talking about again, a method, methodology, sales skills, whether those be soft skills, mm-hmm. uh, like relationship building, hard skills, like negotiating, ha- having a global methodology in place. And I mean, in my experience, if you don't have that, it's pretty hard to do a lot of the other things. you got to have a gold standard. So people, t- we're all coaching you the same thing. It's, it's developing them. I'll give you like an idea that, um, that I have used, I used it my last uh, when I was at Vonage. It hasn't had quite the same application here, but we, it was a series that I called uh, Mini MBA for Salespeople. Right. For example, we tell salespeople, hey, they're publicly traded, go read their 10K. But how many salespeople know how to read a 10K? Oh, no, no, I think that's incredibly valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So we had somebody from our finance department. We collaborated with them to come up with a course on how to do that. Um, we went to our, we called on the head of IT. It was a very common uh, starting point, and they were always in the decision process. So I went to Dara, our head of uh, our uh, you know head of IT for the whole company, and said, "Who gets through to you, and why do they get through, and who you know, etc." And then we turned that into a, a teaching. We did the same thing with our head of uh, procurement. So that's that. That's the idea. It was teaching. So sometimes you need to teach those people the the business concepts they need to be effective in their job. All oh, right. So there's agree. a lot 100%. that goes into that professional development.
1: Yeah, I know I, uh, this whole thing about yeah you know, business acumen for sellers. I think is is a huge, huge thing. Is is yeah, we've get we bring in all these people that are new to new to work, new to business, and mm-hmm. I think oftentimes put unreasonable expectations on them in terms of what they should know about business in general. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm always sort of astonished. And I shouldn't be because I was in the exact same place. Yeah. <laughs> when I started was like uh, but, but I don't know if I took maybe some more business classes, but it's like, yeah, you don't understand anything about it, even how a business operates. I mean, you're like mm-hmm. you're not gonna you may make somebody conversant in, in two weeks, but you're not filling that gap in two weeks.
0: Exactly. And that's where the proficiency comes in. And proficiency, you may not get promoted. You may be in your role and very successful for two or three years before you Get promoted into a different level of selling. There, there, there's yeah, that depends on again variety of things, but we want to provide them those, like I say, that knowledge experiences. Whether it's business, whether it's I, it, what happens when you do acquisitions. Every, the, I, now, this is my third time building an inside sales enablement strategy and program, and every the, all three companies we dealt with acquisitions. Right, then that means you've now got two sales teams that need to be cross certified and. Taught the new rules of engagement and all of that, so so that professional development sometimes has to be a bit reactive as well, so we always want to leave some flexibility in there but i that in my my opinion that also falls on sales enablement to really help lead a successful acquisition
1: now are you finding areas of and how you're dealing with perhaps this overlap um, between sales ops revenue ops I mean there's all sorts of new new departments are being created mm-hmm how are you working with those?
0: For a sales enablement leader or program to be effective, it's really a three-legged stool. It, it, again, just speaking for myself, sure. it's of course the sales enablement team, but it's also the product marketing team and it's RevOps. Even if you happen to report to sales ops or RevOps, which, which I did at Vonage, they are, they're, they're different functions and it's, it, it's, it's, they're parallel functions that need to still work in a partnership, regardless of, you know, if everybody rolls up to the same individual at some level. And I also like to have product in there, but product marketing is, is the one that I really want to build a re- relationship first. So from, from revenue ops, they are typically, I, I won't do a sale. I don't want to ever try and do a sales name and program without data. I saw a mug once that said, you know, without data, it's just your opinion. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And, and RevOps are my partners for getting a lot of the analytics and things that I want to to create uh, and help creating dashboards. Um, one of the things that that I uh, have have put in place is what I call a sales success indicator uh, score. Okay. So for someone that's new and ramping, that's the first application that we came up with for it. We look at out of all the, you know, 25 metrics you could measure, right? What what are the critical five or six, both leading and lagging, that help us know whether a sales rep is likely to be successful or not? What is the right weighting for those? And see, that's the kind of, which we have one of those here, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing where I would, that's where I need to partner with RevOps in doing that sort of thing. But it's it's just a partnership, or should be. It should be a partnership. I've also seen where it's not, and that is to the detriment of both
1: teams. So who's enabling sales managers?
0: That's another aspect of sales enablement. Frontline managers are typically the ones that are need the most development and focus. A very common scenario, in my experience, is you're a great sales rep so you get promoted to be a sales leader. And that is such a different skill set. If you're doing it right, you Need to be mentoring and teaching and coaching, not being a super rep and, and going in and closing. But I've seen that a lot, where they just, they just they they are just jumping in and trying to close now, you know, eight people's business instead of just their own, and they never are given the right training and knowledge to rise above that and be an effective leader and an effective coach. So frontline leader uh, enablement is, ju- is is also a critical part of an overall strategy.
1: So, what's that look like in terms of sort of the curriculum that you run people through in order to get them to a certain point of proficiency?
0: In the time that I've been here, we've had a lot of building to do at the SDR, sales rep, et cetera level. Leader enablement is actually on the back. So, I've been here about a year and a half, and I expect to start putting leadership enablement, formal leadership enablement in place the back half of this year because we're in a pretty good place on all the other things I was brought in to, to create a program from. All, not from scratch, but close. Uh, at, at, but but when I look at something like that, again, that's why I'm such a stickler about having a, a good sales methodology that's everyone using um, globally, is then that becomes a framework that you can start to develop those frontline sales leaders. If you all agree on what the gold standard of a great discovery meeting is, then I can help them understand how to how to coach, right? How to listen. Maybe we create a rubric for them to use for scoring those discovery meetings or debriefing with those discovery meetings. Um, we're able to help them understand how to analyze a funnel. I don't know how good most salespeople are at analyzing their funnels. I think if I think if most of them are honest when they go into a pipeline review, their number one objective is to get out unscathed for another two weeks. So <laughs> so they get they get promoted and and who's teaching them how to go in. Uh, So many times you'll hear sales organizations talk about, oh, well, we need to have 3x, 5x, whatever it is.
1: Pipeline coverage, yes.
0: Yeah, pipeline coverage. But in my experience, Andy, you need to also understand what is the ideal breakdown of revenue by stage. Because just the overall coverage just doesn't tell you what you need to know. But that's the kind of thing that a new sales leader very often doesn't get taught. And and that needs to be part of a good enablement program for them. It's it's um, also an HR has some role in this if there's a leadership development program for the entire company, but that's not always the case. And so if there's sales specific uh, skills that they need as a leader, then sales enablement may need to include that in their program, depending on what else the company has available.
1: Well, what in your mind? What what role does sales enablement have in really sort of, yeah significant change in methodology perspective processes and so on within sales because you know to my mind I mean there's lots of mm-hmm. things that are are sort of broken that have been broken for a long time but, but let's mm-hmm. just take one example is you know you're talking about people who don't recognize revenue by sales stage uh, you know 2 years ago Gartner comes out with their buyer enablement study he says look buyers don't look at and we've all known this for years you've known it as long as I have is that buyers don't look at their buying journey in our sales stages, right? They've got their own, own <laughs> yeah. out of stages. And yet yeah. yeah, we continue to ask sellers to judge where the customer is in their decision-making process using our framework of, of sales stages. And there's a great new book out by uh, Frank Cespedes about sales management sort of aligned with, with uh, the Gartner study in terms of you know there's no longer a unitary funnel, there's four streams the buyers go through. We really have to be able to know where people are in the streams. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fundamental perspective shift that needs to happen if we really want to get increased performance and productivity in sales. Who's going to make that happen? Well, it depends. Okay.
0: As far as who's responsible to drive it, I would put that right back again on on me and, and and the strategy that I'm being paid to create and execute on because a well, I'll get back to that. But as far as who owns it, if I don't have the support and agreement with my CRO or EVP, whatever the structure may be, then then it's not going to go anywhere. I have no illusions that salespeople are going to do anything that my team asks them to do. They don't work for us. Right? Mm-hmm. And so there's got to be alignment up and down the leadership chain that in the case of the kind of shift you're talking about, this is our go-to-market. This is what we're doing. You can't lay low and wait for it to pass over, et cetera. So if you've got that combination of executive sponsorship, visible executive sponsorship, and a good methodology – I'll tell you how that how I have seen it work, and actually seen a lot of success with this in 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 my past two uh, organizations, and we're replicating here. A good sales methodology, and there are a lot of good ones, but a, a, but any of them that are really effective also will drive the behavior you're talking about. They will they will have ways of driving the opinion making out of the funnel. Now, a typical way of doing that is that you that again, sales enablement RevOps would define together what are the exit criteria from stage one to stage two, stage two to stage three. Perhaps the exit criteria coming out of stage one, I'm not a fan of Bant. When I was leading salespeople, I and I, I would tell them: look, your job is to get to people with authority and then help establish with them there's a need. And if you're calling at the right level, right, then you worry about budget and time frame. If you wait for Bant, you're coming to the game column B or worse. Um, and and so to me, a more sensible way of exiting something from stage one to stage two is what's at least one significant business outcome and challenge that they were willing to share with you? What's the impact to having the situation continue the way it is? What capabilities that we offer that mm-hmm. they agree could help them get over that situation and what potential benefit did they see from to me, for example, those five questions, that's something that I would recommend and have done are what take you from stage one to stage two. And if a rep can't answer that, then the manager needs to have them go back and do a little more discovery before, you know, sometimes and sometimes it's tough love and say, you know what, that's not really a stage two, dude. Uh, you need to put that back in one and and, and take another run at it. That's one example. Maybe having a sequence of events or a mutual close plan, you know, people call it different things. That at some point should be one of the extra criteria from one stage to another. But if you think about the the things I'm talking about here, every one of them are customer inputs. The customer inputs drive what stage it's in in your your process. Because you're right, customers could care less. It's amazing to me that sales organizations think that, you know, intelligent, educated, highly compensated, Buyers are, could care. What, we can't force them into our process. But if we understand where they're coming in and we're collecting the right inputs from them, then
1: we're a lot more closely aligned. Yeah, sort of, though. I'm, but back to the point that, that mm-hmm. certainly Gartner made, and one that in my career experienced numerous times, too numerous to count, Yeah, is that, uh, you know, Life doesn't operate in these sort of neat sequential stages, right? There's oh, no, okay. there's no, there's no one discovery call in a big enterprise deal. Oh. There's, oh yeah, no, and, I didn't mean to insinuate that. And they don't yeah. know, all occur in a single stage, um, right. you know. As Gartner put in their famous diagram, is you know this is a recursive, iterative process that goes on. I mean, you could mm-hmm. be through discovery with company A, and then company B happens on the scene, and they might end up. You know, discovering something slightly different the next time, and then A has to go back and catch up. Just as an example, but it's it's, you know, I, I think we're just still. This is to me is one of the big things. That's why I was asking a question about who really drives this change. Is is I see this lack of alignment between buyers and sellers becoming more profound, and um, impacting performance. And but it's impacting performance because we're not educating sellers that this is what's really happening because we're so stuck in our our process, right, and our exit criteria and so on that don't line up with the reality of what's really going on.
0: Well, so maybe I didn't explain effectively because the, the, the things that I'm talking about are inputs that they are being taught how to understand Inquis- be inquisitive, understand how to have the broader thing. I definitely agree with you. Discovery is not a one and done. That's a common misperception salespeople have. So, uh, you know, part of it is building a sphere of influence. And are you are you having discovery with the right people? If you're not having discovery with everyone invo- you know, involved in making this decision, you don't understand what they're trying to solve for. You don't understand how they what lens they're looking at, you know, you're your, your, your offering through, et cetera. And in, in an enterprise versus a you know small or medium deal that those discovery sessions are going they're going to be less or more, but I I think we're saying the same thing. You you everything needs to be focused on understanding where the customer's coming from, what they need, and taking it. And what's interesting is if you do it right, a lot of times salespeople you know feel like well well gosh I, you know, I'm going to give up control of the the sales. The sales cycle here, what I have found is that when, when it's implemented and a sales org is doing it well, I have seen that we actually we never we don't see the sales cycles get longer. And in some cases, we are actually able to shorten that the time. Um and and Gartner's, you know, long before Gartner came out, one of the one of the uh well, I'll just say Neil Rackham is Neil Rackham's sure. work that I have used in trying to teach similar to what Gartner has now come out with. And that is his, buy, you know, he has the buyer's curves for, I me. Mean, we don't have anything visual here. I'd draw them for you, pull it up. But, but Rackham says somewhat the same thing. There are three distinct phases that each buyer, and if you're dealing with five buyers in a company, they're not all going to be on the continuum at the same no, place at the same at time. But, but they all have to pass through those three phases to get comfortable to make a decision. And there are areas of concern, right? Needs, solution, the actual product and price, right? And, and, and so, so I have used Rackham's framework to try to help see, teach salespeople how to look at it in a similar way. You've got four different streams. I've seen you got three phases that a buyer needs to get through. You've got ebb and flow and what they care about in each of those three phases. And you may have five different timelines that you're managing, because you got five decision makers. Um, so I absolutely agree with you. That's that's part that's core to, to to what
1: I teach. Yeah, and I would I would say that's even more complex than that because people look at these decisions that need to be made through two lenses, right? Is mm-hmm. what's in it for the company, what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, take your complexity and you can even multiply it by two. Yeah.
0: No, you've got to deal with the emotional aspect of buying as well as the business case. I agree.
1: Yeah. So, um, okay. I just going to detour to a, a, a different topic here because yeah. I could go on that one forever. Um, yeah. And we'll maybe come back to it and have you back and do it. Is, uh, you and I sort of talked about this maybe a few months ago, is, is certainly I'm receiving. Messages more, increasing number from people who are interested, who are in sales and interested in getting into an enablement career. And so I wanted to sort of delve into that is you know, when you're looking to, or you're giving advice to somebody, or you're looking to hire somebody onto your team, what sort of background are you looking for?
0: I like to see a, a couple of years at least of successful quota carrying experience. And which means probably not an SDR. I mean, never say never, right? But I want to see somebody that actually owned a quota and owned the entire sales process. right? Now, I probably, that's probably, that is, not probably, that is a bias on my part because that's, I had all of that, many years of that uh, before I ever even heard of sales enablement. And I still believe that whatever success that I have had, especially in that first the first time that I was asked to go build it comes from the fact that I knew how sellers, right? I knew what training I wished I'd had. I knew as a sales leader what I wish the company had supported and what I had had to come up with. And I was able to leverage all of that. Um, so I, I prefer to see a background in that. I would also like to see somebody that has, well, it depends what level I'm bringing them in, Andy. But but the sales is number one and then number two, something that in their career or in the conversation that they are somebody that likes that likes to help people. Now if they're a good salesperson, they probably already right. are oriented towards finding a good solution and creating right, creating that. And that's that's fine. But what we do in sales enablement is, is very it's we're a service organization. And if you're not interested in serving the, the internal customers that we have as the salespeople and the sales leaders, you know, I, I would want to fish for that. Probably doesn't show up on a resume, but it's something that when I'm questioning, that I want to look for. And I want some examples of, you know, maybe they maybe they mentored um, someone new on their team once successfully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that kind of thing, right? I, I really want to dig into some of that. Now, I I for a long time would only hire people that came from a had a sales background at some point. Uh, and and when I, as I said, when my last company that I was at, we actually did three acquisitions that my team had to help onboard. And in one of them, I inherited two folks out of the UK who were the were already sales enablement. and neither one of them had ever sold. Now, one was very much instructional design. Uh, he'd written books on, you know, on on doing exciting and engaging. Uh, you know, work, uh, excuse me, courses for sellers and stuff. He, he, he had been part of Oracle's online learning uh, transition and Pepsi and HP all kinds of experience. Right. So he had his thing. The other person had been ready for this, a police profiler <laughs> in her <laughs> career right? for quite a while and actually had become someone who was teaching police profilers how to profile. She'd risen pretty well in that career. Um, and she turned out to be one of the best sales enablement professionals I've ever had working for me. So lesson learned: don't put your blinders on too much. Uh, that would have been a huge miss. And I didn't hire; her. I inherited her. So right. the, coo- the credit goes to somebody else for seeing seeing that. Um, but but uh, but a lot of that is that. And, and if they've been in sales leader, and sometimes that happens, depending what level they're coming in, I'd want to understand what was their philosophy as a sales leader. On whatever they want to call it, training or but developing their salespeople, um, because again in my experience, a lot of sales organizations it really does fall to the leader, maybe even more than it reasonably should. So those are those are some big things that I look at, but I am also flexible because I can teach somebody sales enablement. If, if they've got those other core values and experiences, if they're coming into more of a senior-level sales enablement job, well, then that changes the game, right? And I, I need to see that they've been in somebody else's program and have their own ideas and are mm-hmm. ready to break out and execute some of those ideas and that sort of thing. But entry-level is what I was mostly referring to.
1: Do you see, perhaps, especially in you know, slightly larger organizations, that sort of rotation into sales enablement could be part of a career path for a seller?
0: It, it it is a very viable career path for a seller the challenge that i've seen is compensation typically um, because sales enablement you know at, at, at the same level as as a salesperson might be, might have been at if they were successful as a seller it they may they probably aren't going to make as much money now on the flip side they are developing their career. they they've made the decide they want to develop their career that way it's a different set of challenges. It's something they maybe enjoy doing. Um, they don't have the pressure of a quota, direct quota in the same way. But those are all great things. But sometimes the first thing when somebody comes to me is I, as I have a real conversation with them about what their compensation expectations. Now, for what it's worth, I I believe, and I've always done this, that a good sales any sales enablement person needs to have a portion of their um, compensation at risk. The more junior they are, the less percentage of it. But and that needs to be tied to the overall sales number for the team that they support. And in my case here, my everybody on my team has a has an element of their an at risk element in their comp plan that is tied to my boss's overall attainment. I think that's critical, but it's not the same thing as you owning a quota. No, no, not at all. Yeah, and I got lucky. I was a sales director with a pretty good sized team and quota when when I was asked to move over into enablement and and I had a boss that wanted me to do it and he said, "Look, I'll just pay you on my number now instead of your, on your team number. You don't have to worry about it." I got really lucky that way. So I was able to just just make that move and and uh not have to have that that tough compensation conversation, but it usually isn't the case.
1: Yeah, it seems like you really shouldn't have to, right? If you're really trying to be progressive in terms of of developing the sales team is, mm-hmm. I, I, to me, I think you know companies have gotten away from the sort of rotating people through various responsibilities as a way to develop individuals for management. Yeah. And yeah, you shouldn't penalize people for wanting to go in this role because I think having a perspective of somebody coming from the field, fresh from the field, into the yep. role, uh, the perspectives they can bring as well as what they learn that they can then take on to the next job, yeah, hugely, hugely important.
0: And I agree with you on the comp thing. Again, so much depends on how large is the team that I'm hiring them into. How senior a position can I offer them? You know, things like that. Yeah. But I certainly want to make sure I. Yeah, I want to compensate people as as you know as best I can um, within whatever confines the company puts in place too. <laughs> so
1: yeah, there's always that, right? Yeah. All right. Well, Paul, I want to thank you for joining me. I think we could go on forever, and we'll have you back, and we'll do because it's a. Interesting topic to continue talking about how this is going to evolve, and and next time I, you know, one of the big issues for me that I bring up a lot in this show is, and unfortunately we don't have time to get in on this episode. is just okay, you know, we we're developing these enablement functions, we're bringing good people into them, we've got mm-hmm. them incredible amounts of technology coming into sales, but when you just look at sort of the data overall about what's happening in in sales. It sort of paints a little bit of a grim picture. Uh, Mm -hmm. Quote attainment, close rates, win rates, da 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 da. I agree. Yeah, and it's like, okay, well, how do we? (laughs) What are we missing in this whole thing? Yeah, because I was having a conversation uh, last week with a uh, professor from a top business school in the United States, and had asked the question about. Yeah, my perception is based on the data I've seen and just my gut feel, having been in the business for four decades. Is that we really haven't moved the needle in terms of one of my basic measures of of sales productivity, which is dollars of revenue generated per hour of selling time. Right, and I, you know, interest in his opinion because he had access to a lot more data than I did uh, through research and so on. And his his opinion was, yeah, we basically it hasn't changed probably in decades. Um, yeah, I'd love to have you back and talk about okay, how do we how do we break that loose. That sounds like yeah. I would enjoy that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I could geek out about this stuff all day. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, me too. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. So. Clearly. All right, Paul. if People want to connect with you. How can they do that?
0: Uh, the probably easiest way is through LinkedIn. I keep my uh, you know my, my connection settings open on LinkedIn, and always happy to hear from anybody
1: that wants to uh, make a connection. Happy to help any way I can. Oh, and just one last question. I, and I I think mm-hmm. I asked this before. So. Are you related to the famous Paul Butterfield musician? I I only by nature that I am a
0: fellow musician, obviously not at that level, <laughs> but uh, no, and and you know, I when I was I grew up in South Florida, uh, near Fort Lauderdale, place called Hollywood. Yep. And and I would go into the music store to buy strings and I'm old enough that they used to hand write receipts. You maybe remember that? Yes, I do. And uh, uh-huh. I'd go into a music store to buy strings and they'd ask for my name and I'd say Paul Butterfield and and they'd be like, yeah, okay, kid, I'm Peter Frampton, what's your freaking name? <laughs> so, yeah, I learned early who Paul Butterfield was.
1: <laughs> yeah, so for those people listening, uh, yeah, I mean, you're yeah. not familiar with Paul Butterfield, you want to listen to all the great great bands, uh, go listen to the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, yeah. Good stuff. Oh, yeah, Elvin Bishop, uh,
0: coming out of that band, another one of my favorite players and yeah. songwriters. Yeah. yeah. All right. All all right, right. Thank, thank you so much. I'm- All right. Thanks, Andy. Talk to you soon.
1: Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Paul Butterfield, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.